Okay, good to see you all and big welcome to those who have to watch us online like our Jenny and uh, various others, Francesca, who's not here and uh, bless them, love them. And uh, yeah, so I um, want to pick up tonight a little bit um, to summarise one or two things that we've covered over the, the last month, um, particularly as talking about, um, you know, who, is, who or what is God, and of course I had a little pop at that, Chris had a pop at it as well, and uh, and then I think what we've been dealing with on um, on Sundays has been compatible with that process, talking about um, breath and word, and uh, this last week talking about sound, um, all about trying to wrestle with this issue of, um, of who God really is and what the nature of God is truly is. It's interesting that um, for most of us, we do superimpose onto God um, elements of our own experiences and thinking and history, and some of it is, is done um, uh, involuntarily and in that it just happens, and then, you know, we need someone to help us discover that that's what we said about God. And, you know, for example, you know, those who who find God being described as Father, which Jesus did as being very helpful um, to another bunch of society, that's incredibly unhelpful because all they see, all they see Father as is a disciplinarian, difficult person who you know, said, said that they loved them but never really expressed or showed any love or gave them any personal value. So, so we always have to remember when we use certain terms that that, that will... That will be interpreted through the lens that, that uh, we have been given. And uh, whether we like it or not, most of us have a subconscious image of God being white and male and, uh, and um, uh, sitting on a throne. And of course, the problem is when you begin to mix those genres that we have of, of white God, white male often with a beard, but he sits on a throne because he's the judge, and you mix that with images of father, and then we have this confusing image that God is father, but he is also judge. So therefore, the judge part imposes on the father thing, so we can never really receive him truly as father, and the father thing imposes on the judge thing, so that then we have big questions that if God really loves me, why? And so we finish up with a, what is really a messed up image of God. Now, um, the reason this question is rarely asked is because there is an aspect to this question that is beyond our comprehension, if we're honest. And um, uh, the truth is, humanity and church systems actually don't like things that are beyond their comprehension. We like to bring everything down to where we can explain it, button it down, box it up and sell it. And, um, and, of course, what that leaves us with then is a, is a very restricted and distorted image of God, of the gospel, of love, of grace. And, uh, of course, here we, we've set ourselves at queue to, uh, to not be afraid of those questions and to wrestle, to wrestle with the image. And uh, as I said to you a few weeks ago when I talked to you about it, that, that um, you know, <clears throat> most people who have some essence of Christian experience are very, are very happy to read scriptures about, you know, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, and if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. And uh, to revel in the fact that we long to be made free, 
but we don't return the compliment to God. So we don't allow God to be free to be anything other than our institutional thinking has defined him to be. And that's not fair, first of all. And uh, I also don't think it's healthy. And I think the first person that you have to set free, if you're going to understand truly what freedom is, is the first person you have to set free. And I say person, in inverted commas, is God. And say, okay, let, let him find, let that image, that understanding, find a new place. And out of that new place, let us then understand what our freedom is out of actually setting God free to be who he is. So I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about one or two things that we've been wrestling with and hopefully bring some help and understanding. Now, as far as relevance goes, I I, I do need to say this and and put it on record that there is a reason why we don't give our children the option of attending school or not attending school. Uh, The reason is that their choice would be no, but our understanding is that the necessity is yes. Now, You know, did we sit in school thinking this is all amazingly relevant, this is fantastic, I'm so glad to be here? Uh, No, we didn't, but but people wiser than us have understood that that education is not not a one-visit, this is all you need to know. It's layer upon layer, it's line upon line, it's precept on precept. So we learned stuff in school that we didn't know what it all meant or what it all was for, but... But people in their wisdom have understood that we needed what's called a rounded education. And in that rounded education, we actually don't realise how much we draw from that in the context of our lives, even though sometimes we don't recognise what it was that was imparted to us, we draw from that. So, you know, one of the issues for me is that it's so easy to say, well, you know, why do we go through some of these teachings and and why sometimes do we look at history and why do we dismantle things? It's because that's the process of teaching and it's necessary. And, uh, you know, I'll say something very bold. You will never be a rounded follower of Jesus unless you want to take the time to learn what it means to be a rounded follower of Jesus. Because most of us don't stumble into the gig by accident or become who we need to become without help. And uh, that's mirrored across life. That's why we have psychologists and psychiatrists and educators um, and all kinds of people because we need to learn stuff. And, uh, and learning is good. Learning brings us to a place of wisdom. So I thank you for being here. And uh, there are others who ought to be here if they could be here and some can't be here. But there you go. And I'm saying that as the daddy of the house. So I want to talk to you tonight about something Chris and I have been wrestling with. And I'm very... Very honoured that Chris is here tonight. She had surgery yesterday afternoon on her leg and uh, I told her she could stay home, but bless her, she didn't, didn't want to leave me without her support, so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, so this, this is very interesting, being. It, it, it's, uh, I don't know whether I'll get to the bottom of it or whether I'll be able to convey to you the full understanding of this, but I, I do want you to wrestle with it because there are some things that, that the Bible says that, that challenges in this concept of our understanding of the being of God and then the being of us and the being of the universe and what being is. Um, there's a verse in Ephesians 1.23, I didn't give it to the guys at the back because I'm only going to quote one line from it, and it's talking about the essence of, 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 of this community of people that we know as the church that, that the Bible calls Christ's body. You know, the thing through which his headship and his thinking is supposed to flow. 
And it says, which is his body, this is Ephesians 1.23, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, we're either going to believe that or we're not going to believe it or we're trying to skirt around it and make reasons why it's not true, but I actually have come to believe that. Now, the reason I say I have come to believe that is because I used to quote it and I used to speak it but I never really stopped to think about what it means that he fills everything in every way. That means in all the workings of life, in all the workings of the universe, there is, there is a God thing already there in you and in me. He fills everything in every way. The issue is not him not being present, being present. The issue is our sensitivity to that, our acknowledgement of that, our cooperation with that presence, but he fills everything in every way. Now, in Acts chapter 17, there's also something else that I, I want to read up front because I think it, it gives us a good springboard for, for some of the other things we need to say tonight. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's talking to the philosophers, the Stoics and, uh, and the Epicureans, and he then has a conversation with a group who are called the Bereans, who the Bereans were a little bit like us in that the Bereans asked lots of questions. They were, they were always questioning everything, which, uh, which was great. This, this chapter is, is, is telling the story of uh, Paul's encounter, um, how he's invited to speak to the Greek philosophers uh, in the Areopagus, and, and then it goes, this story builds around that, and then, and then he's talking to these people. Um, there's a little statement in there, I won't read it to you in chapter 17, um, but it's very interesting because it, it talks about the, these, this group who were not convinced on a level of the message of Jesus. It talks about them as being God-fearing people, not in the sense of they're afraid of God, but in the sense that they are on a genuine journey and have got genuine questions and there is something about them that Paul acknowledges and said, you know what, we're not writing these people off because their heart and their spirit is reaching out for truth. And he tries to step into that gap, which again is, is what I believe our role and our call is. And from verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He, he's really striking at something that I'm not sure that we have fully gotten away from. The idea that God actually does not dwell in buildings of any kinds. If, if God is in this building tonight, he's only here for one reason, because I'm here. Because you're here. That there's nothing holy about this building, there's nothing holy about any synagogue or any temple or any minster, or any cathedral, the only thing that ever makes those things holy is when the ones who carry that presence are in the building. So, what's interesting is that Paul is already wrestling with that issue, knowing that we still have temple-mindedness, we still have building-mindedness, and of course, as he's dealing with the, the Greeks and the Epicureans and all these, you've got all the Greek temples in uh, in Greece, and of course, you had all the Roman stuff in the Forum and all that stuff that were temples to, to different gods, and of course, the Jewish temples and synagogues, and trying to get away from this idea that, that you can't corner God 
into your philosophy and system of belief and then, and then lock him up in a building and then get people to think that if they come to the building, that's where God is. Because what happens then is the God that we meet is rarely, truly the God of, of Jesus. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. <clears throat> In other words, it's not about temples and buildings and it's not about doing. It's never based on that. And in verse 28, I'm going to jump to verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. There's that, there's that word. In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophets, poets have said, so he's quoting their, their own poets, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And I still think that that word goes through what we know as the church, and maybe even to us, that says repent. Why? Because the construct that you have made that is your representation of God is not him. Because you've tried to make him, the being, into something so, so explainable, so controllable, so so manipulatable that now it's ceased to have the essence of being and now it's become a doing. What does God do? What has God done for you? What is God doing for you in your life? How many times have we had those questions? What are you doing for God? What did Jesus do? And so all of our language goes towards doing and Paul's saying that was never what this was about. In him we live and move and have our being. So there is a difference between being and doing. Now, it's not by accident that we are termed human beings. That is not an accident. But we have lost the understanding and the skill of being on the altar of doing. So we have changed the whole value system of God it's what he does and it's what you do. And it, to, we've changed it from a being thing to a doing thing. So that leaves us with the question, you know, so, 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 so it says God overlooked such ignorance in the past, but he's expecting something more now by the fact that he's commanding us, he's commanding us to repent from taking the divine being and making it gold or silver or stone or any image made by man's design and skill. Now, I don't excuse our stream, my stream of belief and spirituality from that. Um, I know I was raised within an environment that was critical, for example, of the Catholics having, having icons and statues in, in, uh, in the church buildings. And uh, it even went so far with, with me of, you know, stained glass windows were, were pretty much the same, which is why in most, quote, free churches as we would know them, um, you would never have stained glass windows. You would never, you would rarely, the further you got away from it, the, more, the less you would have plaques and memorials and anything because they were considered icons and things that you just didn't do. Um, and so we thought we were a bit holier than thou because 
you know, we didn't have, we didn't have Jesus in the stained glass window because after all, who can paint an image of Jesus? And we didn't have icons or images of saints or, or anything like that. And, you know, I mean, in, in my stream growing up as a Pentecostal, we, we didn't have an altar, we had a communion table. And we didn't have communion, we had breaking of bread. Because we were trying to move away from what we saw as being an idolatrous understanding of the image of God. But all we did was we transferred those things to, they weren't physical idols and, and they weren't glass windows. But we created just as much of idolatry of what we did and how we did things. And, you know, over the bread and the wine and everything else, we just, you know, kids couldn't take the bread and wine, but yeah, just... You know, so, so we've all been guilty of the same thing. That's why it says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So I'm in a repentance mode that says, I want God to be free. I, I don't want to box him in and I have an image even in my own head and my own mind of who I think that he is. So that poses the question then that we, we need to wrestle with a little bit. What is being? Um, being is more than a label that limits it within a defined category. See, it's interesting that even if I use the term God, that, that creates an image. There's an echo inside of us that sort of starts to paint a picture immediately within us. And that will often depend on how we were raised, how we were taught, um, what lines we were made to think down, what our favorite scriptures were. Um, and of course, the problem of then of, we, we have to use definitions and terminologies, but the fact that the Bible, uh, so often, particularly in English, we have no female gender within the whole thing. Now, I've told you, Holy, Holy Spirit was, was, a feminine, was a feminine noun. Um, so when the Spirit in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 hovered over the water, the Spirit was feminine. Um, so you had, you had the feminine perspective. Um, and then, of course, we, we have changed masculine and feminine as a descriptive thing, we have changed to male and female as a noun. So we now no longer understand God having a masculine side, i.e. that's part of an expression of his nature, and a feminine side. We now have man and woman instead. So, so of course, the dominant culture brings us then that, um, that we, we see God as man. So we refer to God as he. Um, and I get that, I, I, I get why we would do that, but, but ultimately it's a problem because we're then beginning to reduce our understanding of God into human terminologies that speak to us in its explanation on this level and not this level. So we begin to lose sight of the divine perspective because we superimpose on it the human perspective. So, you know, most of our human thoughts when we have been in the phase and some may still be I hope not but when we were in the phase of of who God should judge and why God should judge them is not because we saw those people as an offense to God but because they were an offense to us so if that was offensive to us it must be offensive to God and therefore God should judge that harshly because we're mad about it so now God's mad about it do you see what I'm saying so so as we begin to impose these images, even just simple things like he, we, we can start to, to really create some problems because it's, 
it starts to put labels that limit God to certain concepts that we have. Now, I appreciate we can't just have nothing to say. So this is not about you can't refer to God in any way, but it's saying as we refer to God, we must make sure that the nuance of what we are doing fully expresses his being and not just the label that categorizes him into something that uh, we can then control. Because our, our great struggle as humanity is the separation of doing and being. We, we really, if we're honest, and we should be, I, I know I, I'm, I, I'm honest about this, we find it difficult to separate doing and being. Because we have been so geared, uh, societally we have been geared into the whole issue of, of, of doing, and so we struggle with that separation. Um, so much, or should I say too much, of our internal and personal value is sought for in doing. We, we don't look for our value in being, we look for our value in doing. Right, right, from, right from being kids, didn't he or she do well? We've immediately instilled into that child that your value is the sum total of your doing. We want you to do well. Another thing we say as well, you meet somebody, hi, I'm Anth, hi, I'm John, what do you do? We never ask a person, tell me, who really are you? At the core of your being, how do you be in this world? It's all, what do you do? That's the questions that we ask. So you could put other questions around that that we go to that show you that actually um, it, it becomes all about the very question that rises in our heart is about doing and that's because all of our measurement of self is about doing and then all of our measurement of God is about what God did or what God didn't do and so we get locked in this, in this terrible struggle to separate doing and being and I want to try and help you with that tonight because I've been there and I'm still there naturally that's where I would tend to go um, I can be because I am because I am a um, uh, in my personality detached I'm a detached what's known as a detached personality um, that tends to be, I value everything in the sense of self-loathing and personal failure. So if something's not working out, it's because I failed. It's because I didn't do something. And Chris will say, well, what is it you didn't do? And I'll say, I don't know what it was I didn't do. If I did, I probably wouldn't have done it, but i am obviously done it because we wouldn't be in this situation if I hadn't done it, but I don't know what it is that I did, but I know that I've done it, see? And so there are various levels of that that I'm trying to get through to you that we, we have to try and move away with ourselves and, and with God and with each other from this, this battle of trying to separate doing and being, doing and being. Um, even being in, in, a human, in a human perspective is a very, very interesting dynamic. And... Uh, some people think we use too much psychology in our evaluation of what we're doing, but actually 
Psychology is good because psychology is, is, is trying to understand the human psyche. The human psyche is how we think and why we think the way that we think. And then, of course, when you bring into that philosophy the whole process of thought and evaluation, some, some might think, well, you know, do we do too much of that? But the reason we do it is because we're desperately trying to understand on a human level where the points of tension are that drive us to these things that are destructive in our life. So particularly this thing of doing is a major, major, a major, major issue that we've got to learn to, to define between them and learn how to be and learn to let others be and to learn in the words of Paul McCartney to let it be. So how should we define how should we define the divine in the context of being? Not a being. See, because the moment you put a a there, you have made him a thing again. Do you understand? If the question is how should how should we define the divine as a being? We are then trying to define him as a thing which we can only do from a, 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 a total perspective of human understanding. So he has to be, that's where we come with God as a being is, is white, blue-eyed white male if you're you know, from Western Europe or whatever because we are trying to define him as a being. But the truth is we are not trying to define him as a being, we're trying to define him as being. Being itself. Now, of course, that gets us into areas that most of us are uncomfortable with because you're into areas of things like essence and presence. Uh, and these things we, particularly in the West, we have, we have pulled so far away from those things that now it makes us feel uncomfortable. So we have to make God like us rather than us being like God. So we have to get him in some form. Now, I'm going to deal with the Jesus thing in a little bit. We have to get him in some form that we, we not only manufacture, but it, it's, you know, you, you're back to the Blaise Pascal thing again, that, you know, God made man in his image and man has returned the favour. So what I'm trying to say is that all of us struggle of we, we try to somehow... Whatever we learn about the divine is to squeeze him and squash him into something that kind of suits because we're comfortable with that image of God rather than an acceptance of the being of God and the essence of God. Now, that doesn't mean God has no substance. Don't confuse, don't confuse not being a being with not having substance because then we would have to start to talk about, you know... Um, physics and and all that kind of stuff so and I don't I don't want to go there tonight that's it's interesting read but not everybody would find it interesting or or follow it so how should we define the context in divine in the context of being not a being if if he is a being he becomes just just without thinking he becomes he she it so if God is our being, you can't help it. He has to become he, she, it. We have to give some material 
some material existence because we have made him a being. But if he's a being, then he can't truly be spirit, he can't truly be love, and he can't truly be always present because spirit is not a being, love is not a being. If someone is always present everywhere, fills everything in every way, he is not a being. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you getting this, okay? But that's where we tend to go because we struggle to separate in our life and in our human mind doing from being and things that do are things. But things that be are not things as we understand things to be. Now this doesn't mean I'm taking God away from you. This means I'm giving, I'm giving him back to you. So... So I see a process, and I think we've covered this over the last few weeks, and, and I'll just put a few things here. I think at the, at the core, at the root of this, um, right at the beginning, I, I would say is something called presence. Okay? What is presence? Presence is presence. And presence is Present. A presence is a good definition of something that fills everything in every way. It means there is a presence. So, so I would say first and foremost, and yet there are, there are things like, you know, love and all of those things, yes. But they are expressions within a presence. So, can we embrace the divine as a presence? That means we're not looking somewhere because presence is present. So you don't look for presence because presence is constant, fills everything in every way. So the starting point in trying to understand what we mean by being is presence. The divine is, is presence, not present. He is presence. He is in the atmosphere. He fills everything in every way. That's called presence. Now, of course, what we could move on from that. So, in the beginning, God, presence. We come to this thing called spirit. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit is just really a vehicle for presence. It's interesting, certainly within Pentecostal circles, that we used to use the terminology that God was present because the Spirit was moving. Now, I actually think sometimes, yeah, I'm going to be cruel, but you understand me, you know my heart. Um, and this, this is my background. Sometimes the presence was, was you know, what, what we felt because of what we'd done that created the atmosphere that made us feel good and therefore the Spirit was moving and the presence of God was there. Now, the problem with that for me is that that suggests that outside of that environment, God has no presence. And I have huge problems with, with any spiritual system that is praying that God will come, that you will visit us, Oh, that you'll be with us. Because you have immediately said you're not with us. And you've immediately broken the very beginning of all that he is. You said you are not presence. 
but he fills everything in every way. Therefore, he is present. Therefore, like David said, I don't have to go up to the heavens to bring him down and I don't have to go into the depths of the grave to bring him up. Because he says, you're with me. Why? Because if David goes there, God is there. If David goes here, God is there. Because he fills everything in every way. So we have to start to appreciate him as presence. Otherwise, God is always somewhere else. And I grew up in a culture where God was always somewhere else. And hopefully, at some divine chosen moment, in some worship time or some breaking a bread communion service or in some prayer time, you know, God would turn up. Well, where had he been? And what was it that you were doing that made him turn up? Because then it's no longer about being. And Paul said, this is not about what you, it's not about what the works of men's hands, but, but we thought he turned up because of what we did. And the truth is, whoever we were fooling, it wasn't God. Because of his, he is presence. Not he is present. Being says he is presence. He's in the atmosphere right now. He's here. He fills us as we breathe. So, we, presence is what leads to spirit. And spirit is the thing that we understand to be the vehicle. Spirit is a real thing. It's the vehicle of presence. And then, of course, what we learn from Genesis 1 is that, is that out spirit is breath. I'm going to put breathed as well. Because he breathed into Adam and he, he came alive. He breathed into that first man. He's, he, his, his breath is what brings life. And we, we talked, of course, about the fact that, you know, the very term Y-H-W-H, that that the Hebrews wrote for God, the consonants that had no vowels, you cannot be spoken, they can only be breathed. And we said how when we breathe, we, we therefore breathe the name of God. Ever. And I think it's wonderful, this is so worth repeating that I keep repeating it, that every baby's first breath, they, they breathe the name of God. Every person's last breath, they breathe the name of God. It's, it, it's the intro and the outro and whatever else it is that we're released in. Why? Because, because of presence. Presence moves in spirit, which you don't see, because how do you define what is spirit? Well, you're not supposed to know what spirit is. You know, John says it's a bit like the wind. It goes where it wants. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. And it's like that with everybody who caught this. And spirit... Pneuma in the Greek, ruach in the Hebrew is the same word that we have breath and breathe. So, so when we breathe, we spirit, which is why I told you that words are so powerful, which is our next thing, because words are what happens when you shape your lips and your tongue for the breath that you speak. And when that breath passes through the lips and the tongue that are shaped, it produces something that we call words. But words actually don't really exist in one sense. All they are is a sound that comes from the breath that passes through our mouth. And when God does that, he spoke and worlds came into being. So I'm going to come over here. So words, right from Genesis 1, 1 and 2, words create worlds. 
And the worlds that we live in, our own worlds that we live in, are created by the words that come from the breath that are driven by spirit that depend on our understanding of presence. So then, that worlds, we, we learned this, this week on Sunday, the next thing on there I would say is sound. Because we actually learned on Sunday, and I showed you from my technology, that, that actually... Um, Sound is the interpretation of the movement of breath. Sound is actually, interestingly, not something you make, it's something you hear. Which is fascinating, isn't it? It's mind-blowing. So if, if, we, if we didn't have eardrums in here tonight, we would be deaf, but the point is... The breath that was coming out of my mouth, this would not be a sound. It's only a sound because you hear it. All I'm doing is disturbing the air. I breathe and I disturb the atmosphere. And what you hear translates that into the words, the sound that you receive. Sound is very powerful. And sound brings existence. Because... It says, Let, when the dead hear the sound of his voice, the dead raise. At the sound of his voice, the dead raise. At the sound. What happened in the creation process that the ancients were trying to describe is that anything that hears the sound of the presence becomes something. So as we hear the sound of the presence, something comes into existence in our life, and we bring things into existence in our world. I hope this is making sense. And of course, when something comes into existence, it has presence. Oh, okay. So, this is actually not a straight line. This is actually a circle. It's actually something that becomes unbroken in its life. It becomes eternal. It reproduces itself. Presence releases spirit, releases breath, releases words, creates worlds, releases sound, produces existence, which creates presence. And so when we go through that process, we come to an understanding of God that all the time is just about presence and the process begins again the presence of the spirit etc 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 and the truth is that at the root of this declared reality again we're going to introduce another thing exodus 3 verse 14 is this incredible statement that god made to moses i am you know what who shall i say sent me to you to them, who shall I tell them sent me? And God says to Moses, tell them I am. Or in, in the King James Version it says, I am that I am. The, the, I heard one guy say, the literal English, the nearest you can get to that in literal English is, is the word am is more, and we don't even have this word in English, but we should have it if we're going to try and explain this Hebrew statement, aming. I am amming. He is so am that he is amming, which is a, this is the whole essence, this is the whole presence, is an am 
presence. I am presence. So this is at the root of the declared reality of I am. All of this is the root of this declared reality. This is what's going on in the understanding I am. It's the I amness of things is very present, it's very present, it's immediate, it's now. Now the reason we need to understand this is because this brings everything into moment, into this moment, into the minuscule millisecond, millisecond of this moment. That's the whole concept of it. It's the millisecond of this moment. So God's presence in I am is this millisecond of time. And God's presence has always been in the millisecond of time. So not only has he not been absent or distant or kind of, well, you know, God is here. God has been so present as I am that in the millisecond of time, in the smallest of the atomic structures of who we are, is presence. Fills everything in every way. And then, of course, it, it, John, in, in John chapter 8, verse 58, throws us another little wobbler because um, he, he, Jesus says, um, Jesus says, let's see if I can write, before Abraham was, was, I am. So hang on a minute. Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is a physical manifestation, expression of the Father. Word made flesh. God from the beginning made flesh. And now he's talking to his Jewish audience who are hung up on their heritage. And of course, Abraham, Abraham was around a couple of thousand years before Jesus. But now Jesus says, and, and they want to kill him for it, before Abraham was, I am. Now, he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. Or when Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. In other words, this presence has transited time and never changed in the process of time. I am, always I am. Never I was, never I will be. Always I am. Absolutely present. Why? Because he's the one who fills everything in every way. The issue is not whether that is a reality. The issue is whether we have the faith to experience and embrace that kind of presence within us and within our world. So, if we live in the now, and God is I am... Why do we need to look back to a person and an event that happened 2,000 years ago? If we live in the present, and God is I am, why do we need to look back to an event that happened 2,000 years ago? That was a good question posed to me by Francesca Penti. And it's a very good question. Because if what we were teaching about him being present now and now and it's I am and the moment, why, why should that have any importance to us? Well, I'm going to put a scientific something up here. I'll write this in red so that you can baffle your friends 
even if you don't know what it means, you can talk about it. It's something that... Um, it's something that uh, our dear friend Albert Einstein wrestled with. And in his theory of relativity, he talks about the time-space continuum. And he talks about there are four aspects of that, which I'm not going to go into. But basically, basically, time and space and all things work together in a way that don't fit our standard models of time and clocks and, you know, ticks of the second hand and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I've used this illustration before, but there's basically how some of this stuff works, okay? I, I've been getting up early um, these last few weeks, not because I'm a very spiritual person who, you know, must get up to seek God. It's just I've woken up early and couldn't go back to sleep, so... So um, I like to sit in the window of our... Uh, Patio, not outside, obviously, inside. Uh, and uh, the other day I was looking and, you know, it was beautiful because there, there was a crescent moon and a really big star, which, um, you know, I, I, I have an app on my phone that, you know, tells you which stars are which. And apparently this was, this was a star in, in, uh, in the claw of the crab, which I didn't even know the crab existed in, in uh, you know, in the, in the star signs but I, I found this star and it was huge it was very intriguing because it was big a bit like Venus has looked this last week in in the sky big and bright and uh, I just I thought I wonder how far away that is because it's so bright so so I got on Mr. Google and had a had a little look and and uh, this particular star is 500 light years away so I was again awakened to the fact that here I am, I'm sat in my living room in 2000, December 2018, looking out of my window at something that happened 500 years ago. But I see it now. Its presence is now. Its reality is now but the root of its existence is not. But my interactive experience is immediate and in the moment, even though we are separated by 500 years. You understand how light years work? It means it takes, at the speed of light, it's taken that light beam that I see 500 years to reach Earth, to reach where I am. See, time-space continuum. I am experiencing now... What happened 500 years ago? Now, we have stars in our galaxy that are thousands of light years away, 10,000 light years away, which means that we're looking back into history 10,000 years, except we're not looking into history because it's now. And you say, well, how can that happen now when actually it's happening 10,000 years ago? Because of time-space continuum. Because 
before Abraham was, I am. You have to stop thinking about God in terms of just this person who has to morph into some physical character and that the only reality he has is in the form of some physical character that he happened to morph into rather than understanding that they are only, they're only insights that we have in time of something that has always been because God is presence that we get to see at a specific point But although we experience it then and it's happening then because that's the now, the essence of it has always been happening, but we visit it and see it now. So that's why the I am is always the I am and never not the I am because we simply encounter in this physical moment something that's much bigger than the moment that has its strength and power within, within the whole context of the universe and creation and the bigness and the amazingness of this presence who is being. So God is always being. He is being Jesus manifest now. But what I see is like the star. I'm seeing something. This is why, why Jesus is still important because the light of Jesus that I see now happened 2,000 years ago, but I'm still experiencing that light because, you know, whenever that star is visible, now next month, next year, whatever, it will still be the same thing, but that thing is now, and that thing is then, and that thing will be, but it'll always be I am. Does that make sense? I know it's quite complex, but, but it's a fascinating phenomenon that, that, that old Einstein was driving at with the time-space continuum. So, so in this whole understanding, you know, when you see a star... You don't see a star. So here's the next confusing thing for you. You don't actually see the star. What you see is the light. So Jesus comes along and says, I am the light. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. What you are seeing is the light of a God, a presence a divine who's been there from time immemorial. But what we see is the light. We see the light of the presence. So whoever walks in the light, Jesus said, if you walk in the light, some of the apostles picked up that, that whole story. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him and with one another. Why? Because what we see is the light. And Jesus said, I am the light that lights every man who comes into the world. Now, do you see how that statement was more than just, you know, I've come to help you understand a few things about God. He was saying, you're seeing something that, remember, remember John in John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, without him nothing was made that has been made, but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he was saying, listen, you're seeing the light of, of the being that was before anything, but has always been, and was always I am, and is still I am. Therefore, that same presence is what flows through the universe, what flows through humanity, what flows through life. Now, I'll explain some of the problems a bit later on, but I hope you've got that and caught that a little bit. So, also another little... Oh, yeah, one, one other... So, so those of you who are familiar with the statement that John made in Scripture about the one who was 
and is and is to come. That's what he was trying to convey, trying to drive at. He wasn't that there, were th- there are three separate existences. He was saying, no, the I am means that he was I am, he is I am, and when whatever comes, comes, I am is that, was, is, is to come. Always the I am, never changing, and his, his only existence, in essence, is in that moment. But this moment is not just this moment. This moment is, is part of a bigger thing that is not driven by time as we understand time, like we said about the whole space thing. But it's fascinating. I'd love to get into some of the intricacies of that, but it might stretch you a little bit too far. So here's, here's a great verse, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. This is what Paul wrote. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, a little group called, who call themselves Calvinists, who base themselves on John Calvin's, saw that as being a thing called predestination. Um, but I don't see it as that. What I see is that we were in Adam before we were ever in Christ. Because we are human beings. And he is being itself. And our being was in his being before our being even became our human being. That being was all in him because in him we live and move and have our being. So our being was always being before we ever came to be. And when we came to be, we became a human being, a human manifestation of the being in the same way that Jesus became a human manifestation of the being, of the word, of the spirit, of the breath, of the sound, of the existence, of the presence. And we're trying to open our hearts to realize that this is our inheritance, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're supposed to catch this and grab it and live in it and take some confidence and encouragement from it. So, another illustration of living in, in I amness is one I gave the other week about breath, and I think, I think this is so powerful. You can't take a breath yesterday and save it for today. And you can't take a breath today and save it for tomorrow. And if presence is spirit and spirit is breath, and breath is what brings us through. You, you can't take a breath yesterday, save it for today. You can't take a breath today and save it for tomorrow. All you can do is breathe. And that's the essence of being because within us has been built this involuntary reaction that is called breathing that you and I never give a single thought to unless we're out of breath because we're unfit or because we've had a heart attack or something like that. We never give a thought to the fact that we don't give one single thought to thinking, i got to breathe today, okay, I'm awake now, I've got up, one thing I must remember today is to breathe. You don't do it. Why? Because you have been had built into your very essence the breathing process 
to help you to understand that breath is now, breath is I am, breath is this moment. A breath cannot be saved even for the next minute or the next five minutes. A breath is a breath and it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes and it's there. And we live in that presence of the breath. That's why, that's why it has been understood that, that probably the greatest way to relax and to de-stress oneself is to simply sit in quietness and concentrate on your breath. There's something very powerful about that. And, and you know, we, we've not grabbed onto that enough in the Western church because we thought it was some kind of weird, you know, um, New Age, you know, Eastern, Eastern religion, whatever thing, you know, about, oh, it's all stupid. But when you think our life is in our breath and the breath is the thing we do and it's where we speak the name of God and, and sometimes you should try it just to sit and just, just concentrate, just focus on breathing. Don't try and breathe, just focus on listening. That's the breath, that's the life, that's presence within you and it has an amazing calming effect. I mean it really does and I have to say because there's something spirit that, that is in that breath that releases presence and we become aware and, and the truth is we become present in the moment which is another thing we're not very good at doing being present actually in, in that moment but anyway so how the I amness and the nowness work best for us is actually in an atmosphere of faith that's why the Bible talks about faith that's why faith becomes important because how the I amness and the nowness work best for us is in an atmosphere of faith. And this is where, for me, faith comes into the equation. And we said on Sunday, and I think it was very powerful, that faith is not a belief, faith is a sound. You know, we already quoted what, what the Bible says that uh, we live by faith and not by sight, and we talked about the fact that seeing is the is the great contradictor of faith. And uh, how we see things, what we see, uh, is the thing that, that diminishes our ability to actually become a person of faith. And the, more, the less we are a person of faith, the less likely we are to be able to relax into and embrace this sense of being because being is not a thing. And anything that's not a thing needs something other than thing stuff. You know, that's why we like to say, what am I supposed to do? And what will he do, he do if I do? So we all get that because, because being is not a thing. We, we have lost the art and the ability of actually coming to a place of faith in the being. Faith in the being. The being that is, you can't physically touch it. And, and in some ways, a misunderstanding of the manifestation of God the Word in the form of Jesus can be misleading to some because then we become so caught with the physical aspect of Jesus and his physical death and his physical resurrection, his physical ascension, which are very important as we've explained in the context of, of, of time and space, we become so absorbed with that that, that again, Jesus is now somewhere else. He ascended to heaven. He's now somewhere else. He's at the right hand of the Father. But we think that where the Father is seated is, 
in the heavenly places up there, but we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the truth is where that rain is is supposed to be in here, not out there, because it's not temples built by human hands and it's not, it's not some heaven space built by some angelic hands. It it's, fills everything in every way. You are the temple, Paul says. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the breath, the presence. You are the temple. That's where he dwells. So, so faith has to come, come into this because in natural terms we can't prove any of this beingness. We can, only, we can only be in this beingness. And faith allows us to step out of the world of sight and into the world of faith, uh, into the world of being, into the world of I am, into the world of, of presence. Now, I loved what I said on Sunday. Sorry if that sounds very proud, but I really did love it. It was great. Um, faith is the inner conviction that all will be well now, I don't know what that does for you but that does something for me it's a very very simple definition of faith faith is the inner conviction that all will be well and I can honestly say that I, I've spent more time out of faith than I have in faith if I'm perfectly honest as because we wrestle remember we wrestle with that with that struggle between being and doing. It's the struggle we have. And while ever we get into the doing, we make, we make our spirituality an act. And, and what God has done is not by works, lest any man should boast. You know, by faith you have, by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? Why? Because it's the faith in the, the beingness. And I've spent too much time in in the doing, but I do know that the moments that I have found that place of, of faith, I have had that inner conviction that all will be well. It's like it doesn't matter what situation you're in, what you're facing, what's going on, you just have this inner conviction that all will be well. That, I believe, is where faith comes into this and where, where the divine in his being wants us to be in our being, that place that has the inner conviction that all will be well. So I quoted Julianne of Norwich, and all I can think of with that is sale of the century. For those of you who are old enough, that used to come from Norwich every, every night of the week. It was a game show back in the 70s. Um, uh, and uh, this woman's name, Julianne of Norwich, all will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing shall be well. I think, I think she was trying to make us get the point. So faith is the inner conviction that all will be well. That, for me, is the essence of comprehension that I am now being with the being. Because I have, I have within the conviction that all will be well. So, uh, let me finish with one other little thing. Um, the circle of life. Lion King, circle of life. Um, it's fine, I get it. You know, what it's talking about is, you know, things are born and things live and things die and they go back into the earth, what have you. But uh, I actually don't think there is a circle of life. I think there are circles of life. And uh, Chris and I have wrestled with this thought. We've talk, I've talked to Chris about it because... Um, it's like, well, 
when we talk about faith and being, am I supposed to... Am I supposed to be this raging success? Because if I'm not, uh, then obviously I don't have faith, you know, and that's part of the way that I was taught, you know, if you really had faith, then you wouldn't be sick, you wouldn't be poor, you wouldn't have struggles, this wouldn't happen, that wouldn't happen, you know, you just, you need more faith, brother. Um, which, of course, all that ever did was never stimulated more faith, it just, it just put more condemnation and guilt you know, and what a useless follower of Jesus you were and you'd never be good enough, you know, because, and, and that is inappropriate and it's wrong, but we do have to address the issue about how does this work? Because if, if, if he fills everything in every way and, and if, if he is I am and if there is a presence and if in the breath I find the place of faith and in that faith... I have the conviction that all will be well. How does that look in the context of life? And I tried to illustrate this with, with some circles. I mean, I'll draw it over here. I'll run out of space a little bit. But, um, okay, so this, this, is, this, is, this is my life, your life, okay? This is me. Now, if it was just that, that's fine, because that's all I've got to deal with. However, the issue is that it's not the circle of life, like your life is not just the circle of life, it's the circles of life. So the problem with this is, is that, you know, there's a, a family circle and there's a, there's a social circle and there's, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 a thinking circle and there's a financial circle and it would then look if you just left it like that that life is kind of some form of Olympic game <laughs> that we have to participate in but it's not you see because if I were to continue this round and I can't put names in all of these my brain's not awake enough to do it but if we were to do that and say actually into my circle comes all these circles that I have no control over, but they impose upon my circle. See, I have a life, Chris has a life, and our circles intersect each other. You know, it would be nice to say that, you know, oh, because of Jesus in our marriage, this is me and this is Chris. But how many of you know that more often than not, even in marriage, this is you and this is the other person... And here's self-determination, you guys can't see this, and there's self-determination here, but here, what about here? See, there is imposition into this circle from that person, and there's imposition into that circle from this person. And so the whole idea that, well, you know, I forgave Rosie, but Rosie still carried on hating me, well, because you have no control over Rose's response to your kindness, but someone else's interaction might bring a kindness into your life that brings a blessing and a help and an encouragement and a kindness. But if we're not careful, what faith becomes is, my life is just my life now and nothing else intersects. But the problem is, there are lots of things that intersect our life and the only bit that I am totally in control of and responsible for is this bit here, okay? That's the space in there 
that in the presence that I experience, that's all I'm responsible for. I'm not responsible for you or you or you, except perhaps in my context as leading a church, which then that's another circle that comes in. But in the context of my own life, there are many things I can't control and there's lots of things you can't control. And if you ever tell people, you know, if you find Jesus and you get this relationship with God, you'll be in control of your whole life. You're lying and it's wrong because you're only in control of the bit where no other circles intersect, where other people have a right to choose and where where life does stuff and where the brokenness of humanity and and the weakness of nature intersect and we can think well I couldn't overwhelm that well that's because you're not in control of that in some of this we get some breakthroughs in various things but what I want to show you is interesting there is when you put these intersecting circles like that guess what you have you have what's called a nucleus right so my life with these intersecting circles forms a nucleus, and the whole of the universe is made up of nuclei, not nucleuses. The whole of the universe, but he fills everything in every way. So my life is a microcosm of the whole universe in that it operates like a nucleus, in that there are Aspects of my life that are not in my control, but here, this is the bit I'm going for. We get too busy, fussed out about why this, why that, why not, who should, who shouldn't. But all that we are responsible for is for being. We must in here be. And as we be, we experience faith. And faith gives us an inner conviction with all the movement of this in the nuclei, that all will be well. All will be well. I don't know how all will be well, but all will be well because that's how the universe works, because he fills everything in every way, and there is an order, and there is a presence within all of it that somehow all will be well. One way or another, all will be well because he is present, and that's where the goodness comes through because of his being. God doesn't do goodness. His being is goodness, and when I connect with that goodness, that being, that goodness touches my heart and I become part of this. Now, that, these are just musings and thinkings, you see, that I was trying to fiddle with because I'm, I knew, uh, kept saying to Chris, there's something about these circles and intersecting circles and, and, and things that are not in my control, but within here, this is the space. This is what we would call the heart of the matter. And how many times are we drawn away from the heart of the matter into the peripherals? It's also interesting when you look at the English word heart, that in the middle of heart is the word... Here. And if you put that on, here. So the heart... It's got more to do with hearing than anything else. That's why Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you'll know the hope of his glory, because we're seeing something from what we hear in here. It creates the projected image of the being that brings the presence 
that lets the I am be released so that in here, in this bit here, when I grab this, I have that inner conviction that says all will be well. So I wish I had this down to the point where I could say to you, nothing bothers me now because I understand all. That is our journey. And the reason that is our journey is because of what I said to you earlier, and I'll finish with this. It's the reason that that is our journey is because of the struggle as humanity in the separation of doing and being. It's settling from that struggle. It's giving up the fight. It's surrendering. It's as, it's as, as was written in the book of Acts. It's repenting. It's turning around. It's changing our mind so that we no longer have some kind of idol, but we respond to this being who is present in us so that in the construct of this, the God who fills everything in every way, we understand he's filling everything in every way. And just as sure as the universe has been around for a long time. I actually think we do the divine a great disservice if we try to argue that the earth is 6,000 years old. I seriously do. I think we do the great disservice I think to be able to say, do you know what, for millennia, the divine, the being, the presence has been putting stuff together. And as the Bible says, holding it all together by the power of his word, by his breath. And we say, do you know what, we've popped into this story just in, we've just come into one sentence within one paragraph in the bigger story. And we, we get to star, we get to contribute to this thing. But, but there is a millennia of being, of presence that is wonderful. So, so the idea of, of things being around for millions of years does not diminish my faith. It says, I can believe that because the one who is being in his bigness has held all that together by the power of his word. And when chaos occurs, he's able to bring order. And when darkness comes, he's able to bring light. And when there's nothingness, is be able to make something. And that, that's, that's the work of the being in our world when we learn just to be. So learn just to be. Stop fretting and striving over doing because all it's going to get you is tired, weary, condemned, unhappy. We've got to learn just to be because he fills everything in every way. Okay, that's me done. Bless you. I hope it's been helpful. We love you and we'll see you on Sunday. Good.